This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Happy Saturday, Toronto. It's Andre Peru behind the microphone, joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. It's 5 o'clock. That means it's time for Tasting Together. Tasting Together and thinking about dinner plans. Although these days in the GTA, if you probably don't have a reservation made, you'll be hard-pressed to find a place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's one of those times of year where like, most of the restaurants are just packed these days, eh? Yeah, although I've heard a few restaurants um, actually put out like deals on the fly on Friday and Saturday to try and lull some people in because usually these winter months, things are a bit slower. So who knows if you're kind of not looking to cook tonight, maybe you should just (laughs) find your favorite local spot and see if they have a table for you. You know, it's been a while since we've said the word pandemic on this show, but I still think there is just that kind of post pandemic, uh, you know, FOMO that's taken place where people have just missed that feeling of being able to walk out and go into their favorite restaurant whenever they want. And frankly, I'm here for it. I think it's great. Although I will say like Saturday's not always the time I go out because it can get so busy and I like a chiller vibe. So (laughs) I do prefer going during the weekdays. And usually during the weekdays, you get those things like the half price bottles on wine and stuff like that or or fun discounts. So I'm I'm here for that. For me, it's also been with a fresh baby in the house. You know, I'm certainly not rolling into a fine dining place with my up a baby stroller. Although I have managed (laughs) to like sneak out to a couple of lunch places on like a Monday, Tuesday when things are a little quieter and I don't feel like I'm disrupting other diners with the, with the stroller. And it's just like, you know, I'm kind of of the mindset where I think most people are pretty respectful of new parents when you see someone pushing the stroller, especially if that feeling is reciprocated. I try to be very mindful of other people's space. But, oh man, I never realized how much space a stroller takes. Yeah, they they do. And, you know, Toronto is not a large, like a lot of the restaurants aren't super large. Very small, yeah. They have narrow doorways and narrow entrances. So one of the things I've been thinking about lately as I've gone out and started exploring the city and more again is the reminders to me of what neighborhoods I like to frequent and what neighborhoods I don't. And it just kind of brought forth, you know, one of the things we talk about on the show sometimes is cost and the cost of going out to eat. And I will totally say that I I love supporting hospitality and I love going out and I will never be one to really complain about the price of of dining out Mm -hmm. and having that experience. But I will say that some places are a little bit smoke and mirrors, like they cost more than they really should for what they're serving. Oh, and I think I, a lot of it sometimes has to do with just the location that it's that the place is. I, I actually love that we're sort of touching on this here because it, it's the thing where I don't mind spending the money. I, I really don't, especially if it's something I'm trying to treat myself with. But I think the worst feeling in the world is feeling ripped off. Like, I think, I think beyond, like, I have a ton of empathy. We've spent a lot of time talking about how important it is to be empathetic, especially with hospitality and hospitality workers, I can I can forgive a waiter having a bad day or taking a look around a restaurant and seeing, okay, someone called in sick and they're covering way too many tables. Like I can forgive things like that. But like when you walk into a place and it's just like, I spent money on that? That is never a good feeling, especially given how hard we all have to work for our money these days. Yeah, like for me, if I had to say there's one neighborhood that I don't tend to venture to too often, it's the King West neighborhood for me. Mm-hmm. I find that there's a lot of places there that not, and there are great places there too. Don't get me wrong, but I will say that there's 
quite a number of places there that they're they charge a lot because it's a well-known district it's entertain you know it's called the entertainment district it's close to the financial district people there probably have a little bit deeper wallets but that also means that you might be buying something and you're you're paying to just be there and and i i actually was there this past weekend and i got i got two martinis not fancy martinis like very standard gin martinis with a little bit of olive juice and it cost me over fifty dollars yeah, that is insane. Well, I mean, I, I think the the sort of thing that like really kind of encapsulates exactly what you're talking about. And this will keep us out of trouble of having to name anyone in specific uh, today that might still be open. But like Frings, the Drake and Suser Lee restaurant that was on on King West there. Uh, you know, I remember I've been by that place. I've seen the blog post. I've seen the Instagram and it was just like. That was one where they couldn't even convince me to, to set foot in the place because it felt on the surface like it was all the smoke and mirrors. You've got two celebrities from two different worlds that should just bring this whole cool factor, right? Like there is a part of the fabric of the culture of Toronto that really is just Drake. And there are a lot of people who are in it. You can see it by the number of people who wear the OVO uh, fashion. And I mean, that clothing definitely has a, a cool factor to it. And Sue Lee as well, like a... a a behemoth of celebrity chef, like probably the OG celebrity chef from Toronto. And it's just like, I just feel like that place never, never landed the cool factor that it, it intended to have. It's so funny because I had Sicily for the first time as takeout during lockdowns. And I will say, I think that food is worth it. Just say, yeah? I've not stepped foot in the restaurant myself, but the food We've got it. We got it was not that, once, was, but we got it twice. Was that at the original, like at the Suser? Or sorry, what is it? I Lee? think it was at Lee. Lee, sorry. Lee, I could, yeah. I mean, that's great to hear that that chef Suser Lee is still like delivering the goods at uh, at some of his properties. But Frings was definitely not it, and it's exactly like you said. Prices were high. You know, the food and the wine list were sort of hit with like the usual suspects to the point where it was almost a stereotype of what it was trying to be. And I think there's a lot of places on King West that still exist like that. Yeah. And I, I know another neighborhood that some people have begun to turn a bit of a critical eye to as well. And people may challenge me on this, but I, I find that the Ossington strip is getting a little bit too cool for school as well. And I mean, I say this as a person who still frequents the Ossington strip quite often, because I do love a lot of the spots there, but maybe, well, you know, even moving away from cost, it's getting too busy. I think, me, I guess, but I think it's just sort of like the Toronto thing, right? Is it's just like you have a neighborhood that has that little bit of grit, that thing about Toronto that when you're new to the city, you know, it really just has a, a romanticism to it. And it's a lot of like scrappy up and coming business owners who have clawed their way through finding a place that's that's close enough to the TTC that they can make a name for themselves. Then people with money start to pay attention to it and then you get those restaurants with that same thing where it's just like i think people think that they're going to get rich in hospitality so let's finance a restaurant that has a celebrity name attached to it and i think Ossington is is heading the direction of of king west i don't think it's there yet but i think what we're seeing is like the beginning of that transportation it was sort of like the entertainment district seems to have moved further west and west when i moved to the city in 2007 it was all right about oh geez like Queen and John in and around there, the the old school entertainment district. I don't know. All that place has been turned to condos now, hasn't it? I don't know. I I mean, maybe I'm just curmudgeonly and I <laughs> like a quiet restaurant. And, and maybe this is a conversation for another time, but I have been 
thinking about why there's certain places I really enjoy or why I like going on a weekday and not on a weekend. And sometimes it has to do with noise and crowd levels. And I'm not really a crowded noise person where I want to yell at people while enjoying a dinner. And I think sometimes some of my, some spots I really like frequenting have started trending towards that. And maybe it just means that I don't, maybe, maybe that is the demographic, <laughs> maybe, maybe louder and dancer, a little bit rowdier does draw in the dollars and you can't fault a restaurant for moving in that decision versus oh dealing with curmudgeonly old me who wants this. I mean, that's it. I, I hate to tell you, Maroki, it just means that you're, you're starting to get old. And I mean, I put a little, <laughs> I put a little asterisk in our show notes on this. It's just like, you may need to consider heading up the highway. I think that's something we'll, um, we'll touch on maybe later in the summer, but I think the Hamilton vibe might be calling to you. There's a lot of cool places in downtown Hamilton that just don't have the same crowds as Toronto. It's been percolating for a little while. That might be the next cool, uh, I put it in air quotes, Toronto neighborhood to go eat at. <laughs> well, I think there's still a lot of other neighborhoods within the GTA, like within North York and York and, you know, East Gerard and West and the junction of Toronto that is still, still to be explored or, you know, West Queen West. Um, I know affectionately sometimes called Queer West. There's a lot of places still in the neighborhood. And maybe I'll, you know, I want to shout those neighborhoods out as we wrap up this first segment so that it's not just curmudgeonly Maroki saying there's nowhere to eat anymore in Toronto. There's plenty of neighborhoods, <laughs> like all the ones I just mentioned. That's where I'm venturing these days. You know, I love that you're trying to avoid being a curmudgeon, but I think the next segment might unleash the inner curmudgeon for both of us as we're going to touch on the booze tax that's been all in the news. It doesn't kick in until the beginning of April, but we're going to tell you everything you need to know about it coming up. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Just before the break, you and I, Andre, were beginning to touch on a topic that might be a little bit hot button, if not Ontario, consumers all over Canada around the booze tax that's about to come into place in April, I believe, right? So on April 1st, the uh, I guess the alcohol tax, it's basically an excise tax, is set to increase uh, it's something that quietly happens every year, but the big deal about it this year is this tax is actually indexed to inflation. It's indexed to the consumer price index, and it's usually like 1% or 2% a year because it's it's linked to that, but because inflation is so high, the tax is actually set to go up 6.3% this year. So it's actually raised quite a few eyebrows with people who are in the industry. Yeah, I, I know when we saw the news article, it looks like there's some really massive figures that the government stands to make by bringing this tax up. And I saw Global News had a chance to catch up with Jeff Gringard of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. His organization's out in BC, but as you mentioned, this is something that's going to affect Canadians from coast to coast here. The federal government's going to make an extra $45 million off of this. That's a lot of money. I think like the moment you hear that, and I know... This has actually been one of the ongoing conversations for a lot of, you know, grape growers and winemakers. I don't know if out in BC, but in Ontario for sure, talking about how much their industry brings in quite a bit of money for Canada's economy and that perhaps the, you know, the government should be actually relaxing some of the duties on alcohol as a result. But there's, you know, obviously the flip side of the coin is the, you know, the commentary that in the end, alcohol, like tobacco, is essentially a good that 
causes damage to health. And therefore, if you're voluntarily partaking in it, then you should be taxed accordingly. Global News actually had a chance to catch up with Sylvain Charlebois, who I know is a voice on this station from time to time. He's the food professor. And he actually makes exactly the comment that you're making right now. It is a tax based on choice. You're not taxing the obligated. You're taxing people who are willingly uh, buying an alcoholic beverage. And so that's really what the industry is up against. And it's fascinating when you talk about the vice. It's something we talk about a lot on this show, is especially when we're talking about the craft producers that we're dealing with mom and pop shops. We're not talking about Molson. We're not talking about Smirnoff. We're talking about families who are making wine. We're talking about families and young entrepreneurs who are making craft beer. And I mean, let's take a look at the big picture of what's happening in the world. In this show, we're talking about how groceries have skyrocketed in cost. And, you know, during the pandemic, the government was more than happy to take the tax revenue from increased alcohol sales because we had nothing else to do. Is the tail end of a pandemic when inflation is out of control, when we do hear economists talking about an upcoming recession, is that the best time to talk about hiking the taxes at this point? I mean, it's something that Jeff Guignard also talked about with what happens to the consumer, not just the people who make the product, not just the retailers who buy it and resell it, but what's going to happen to the end consumer when this tax goes into place. Everybody who produces alcohol in Canada, their taxes are going to go up. So when we, as a private liquor store or government store or restaurant or a pub, when you buy it, your costs have gone up. So we have no choice but to pass those costs on to consumers. And I wonder if there is probably a lot more contentious opinion about the raising of taxes in provinces like BC and Ontario, where we have quite a high duty imposed on alcohol already over and above an excise tax. Like I would be a little bit curious about what Alberta, where they have deregulated alcohol sales, is thinking um, in comparison to, let's say, folks in Ontario. Again, this is Jeff Greenard from the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. But he talks about pretty much from coast to coast here how much we will, the end consumer will see prices go up. And a six pack of beer, you can probably see that going up 50 cents or a dollar. You'll see bottles of wine going up by a dollar. You'll find your favorite brand of vodka or gin or spirits going up by a couple of dollars. Maroki, it's something that you touched on a, a little bit. It's just like whether you're in a province that has a more heavily regulated liquor board like Ontario or like Quebec versus a place like Alberta where they have more private stores. I don't think average Canadians even think about how much of a bottle the government takes in taxes. Well, I can't speak for um, distributors and importers, but I know myself as a consumer, when I was coming back from the Finger Lakes, I declared the wines I purchased at the border and I was charged HST, which is standard for Ontario, but I was also levied 40% in duties on the bottles of wine I bought, which is quite a bit. And I can only surmise that it's a similar percentage um, perhaps a little bit less, but a very similar percentage for importers, which is why we see so much of international products, like so many wines from Europe, cost very different when we buy them from the States or in Europe versus in Ontario or BC or other parts of Canada. Now, I guess that's the other thing to say is I know you and I are both being very hesitant on having this debate. I thought I was thinking our debate would be a little bit more animated than it is, but it's just like, I think we're, <laughs> we're both pretty good at seeing both sides of this. There is no doubt that alcohol does cause harm to society. We hear PSAs on this very radio station talking about not drinking and driving, and that's still very much a problem. And you should not 
drink and drive. Alcohol is still a drug, and it is still, as Sylvain Charlebois said, something that people choose to consume. It's not a necessity. It's not an apple. It's not what we need for sustenance. It is a luxury item. But, I mean, at what point is the government imposing these level of taxes just benefiting, you know, large corporations by putting small businesses out of business? Thus, bringing in more punishment. I, I, I put this in quotes because I, I, in the end, it's like... Well, it's, it's a syntax. You can call it. It's a syntax. We can call it a punishment. Yeah. It's like, is, is, is levying higher duties actually going to prevent consumption for people? Or is it going to just encourage people to buy, like, I don't know the bulk cheap alcohol in larger quantities or, you know, it's creating scarcity. And when you create scarcity, people are going to actually consume more, right? Like if you think about Europe and how alcohol has a very different price point over there, usually lower, I don't really hear about alcoholism being discussed in quite the levels that we do in North America. I think it varies from market to market. Like I know the UK recently has been running some pretty serious campaigns Largely around binge drinking. Uh, apparently, there's issues with like the happy hour being a really big problem around a lot of pubs in in the UK. But uh, I, I do agree with you. Like the culture, in, especially in Europe, is very different than it is in North America, where we're still still dealing with our prohibition era laws. Like the whole idea yeah. of having a glass of wine with dinner, a glass of wine with dinner, or a glass of wine with lunch is the norm in a lot of European countries. And it really brings back a lot of conversations about what we as a society consider sinful items versus not, right? If you think about even, even I don't know, if you go back to the 60s, there was a while where tobacco and nicotine was not quite seen with the lens that it is now until research basically said that it was bad for us. And I I don't know, it's a complicated issue. I guess for me personally, I don't really think that raising the taxes is going to be is the way to go I, I i genuinely just don't think that that's going to change consumer habits all that much um and i think if, it, if it's going to benefit the government i would like to see where those dollars then trickle back <laughs> down into, into, into no i love society. that i mean i mean i think most people who've listened to this show regularly can tell that neither you or i are are conservatives by any stretch of the imagination but uh, I'm like you. I want some accountability. If the government's going to be sticking their hands in my pockets, they're going to be sticking their hands in the pockets of, of beverage producers. I'd like to see a return on that money. I think the government gets enough of my money at the end of the day. And I don't think we're seeing enough of where that money's being put to use. So, you know, um, that point, Maroki, you, you've got me to put my foot down. I think we should be speaking up against the rise in the excise tax, um, we should hold off on increasing the alcohol tax, especially if we're heading into uh, a recession later this year. And uh, I want to hear what levels of government are going to do with that extra money. But you know, Andre, when you want to talk about transparency and where our dollars are going, I know the CEOs of large grocery chains are being uh, called to appear in Ottawa to talk about why their profits are still very high when they claim that they're only raising their dollars on inflation. And on that note, we are going to be speaking with a Toronto area man who is actually doing something to keep the cost of your groceries down. So stick around. This is coming up right after the break on Tasting Together 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. 
You know, Maroki, I know that cost of food has really been front of mind for a lot of Canadians, especially people in the GTA. Um, and it's sort of like Galen Weston has kind of become public enemy number one. And he has recently been summoned to Ottawa to talk about what exactly is going on with the grocery stores and the increasing cost of groceries. I feel like every single newsletter I've received from Loblaws has been the butt of some public joke or commentary, <laughs> essentially saying, oh, you know, accusing them of saying, oh, they're trying to win goodwill by freezing a price or offering a discount, but not really. And I think that's what they're being called to Ottawa for to kind of defend or just like discuss why they are still achieving the profits they have when they are claiming that they're just raising prices due to inflation. And on the flip side of that, there are some folks out there who are doing good in terms of not only trying to keep prices of produce low for households, but also diverting food away from landfills. So we're very pleased to have Divi Oja from Odd Bunch join us today. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. I'm really excited to dig into this with you. Um, I think maybe just first and foremost, why don't you tell us a little bit about how Odd Bunch works and how do you source your produce? Yeah, absolutely. So our supply chain is relatively simple. Um, the way that we work is we've got preset boxes of fruit and vegetables that we make available through our website, Seven in, in particular. Um, and we work with the, the grower side. So we're talking farms, greenhouses, and we also work with distributors to source anything that wouldn't make it to the traditional grocery store shelf, not because it's lacking in freshness, but simply because of cosmetic imperfections or surplus or logistical issues uh, and if an inefic inefficiencies that come up during that process. So while we do that, we are not only able to divert good food from from being wasted um, but we're also able to procure it at a lower price point that allows us to then pass on those savings to the customer so someone like you and i could sign up for a box we'd know what's coming because we update our website weekly on mondays and you're able to then sort of plan your meals around it um, not only is it convenient because it's get delivered right to your door but you're also sort of have the certainty of paying a fixed price week over week even though the selections change and even though the, the prices at the grocery store fluctuate you can be confident that you're paying uh, a specific amount which really helps people especially in in sort of the time that we're living in now with with you know prices skyrocketing almost week by week something you said there blew my mind a little bit it's something that a lot of people may not really be aware of when you set foot in, uh, you know, let's just say a higher end grocery store, we won't pick on anyone in particular right now because it's a lot of the same, but you know, you look at that perfectly manicured display of tomatoes or that perfectly manicured display of let's say avocados or lettuce, and that doesn't happen by accident. Um, Divi, can you maybe explain to our listeners a little bit how things actually might work at a grocery store? in terms of where in, where in the supply chain stuff that isn't beautiful doesn't make it to the store so obviously the the supply chain of grocery stores and i think one of the most important points for for us to to really understand is that a grocery store is so much more than just produce right 
So it is just a segment within a grocery store. I've, I've seen sort of studies and, and research suggest that they have anywhere from 40 to 80,000 SKUs, right? So they're dealing with with a whole lot there. So when it comes to the produce section, obviously they, for functional reasons and then for reasons which I guess I, I don't have very much sound logic for, uh, they decide to sort of display uh the items in, in a specific way to, to make it look appealing to the end customer like yourself and, and myself. Uh, but it does come at the expense of a lot of food falling through the cracks of this food system. So things which are not necessarily uh, deemed cosmetically perfect um, for their size, shape, color, uh, minor scarring, they may not make it to the retail store shelf even though they're perfectly fresh and good to eat. So these things can get turned away right at the farm level um, or at the distribution level. And a lot of the times the grocery stores may not have anything to do with such product and, and, and may not necessarily provide resources for, for the farm or the distributor to then uh, sell that product or at the very least uh, donate that product. So uh, they've got their work sort of cut out for them. Um, and, uh, you know, not to, to be extremely critical of their their operations uh it, oh it we can be critical of them that that's okay we'll allow that here <laughs> um but you know as, as a business that's sort of seen a little bit of growth in the last little while you know even for us it's it, it does sometimes become a bit difficult to be very efficient with our operations so i can only imagine i mean with with thousands of stores across the country it's it can be difficult but there's just certain things that there's just absolutely no explanation for right things which are not perfectly shaped should not be should not be turned down there's no i can't see a, a good enough excuse to to be doing that when 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 we're charging you know people four dollars or five dollars for a head of lettuce so some of those things definitely do need a change um and and i think we're right at the forefront of that change at, at odd bunch and we're pretty excited to see i think people are, are are answering this question loud and clear that they don't really care about what their food looks like um <laughs> and they will be more sustainable with their food choices if given the options so you know it's one of the jokes that i've sort of been making is that food ends up all the same color in the end and it's you know something else i've, <laughs> I've learned from spending times around farms and in vineyards is like the pieces of a plant that you can put in your mouth that you don't think about like one thing that i've, I've told certain people like if you don't have an, a paring knife handy and you get a bunch of strawberries you can eat the tops of the strawberries it looks a little strange but all that stuff yeah. has flavor when he was talking about you know the the changing paradigm of food be needing to look aesthetically pleasing on the shelf in order for you to put it in your shopping cart like do you think the idea of beautiful fruits and veg is like a, a a predominantly north american thing and and i would like to i think that it's probably affects a few countries i remember in japan like everything is always so pristine to the point where fruit is like it's in its own little compartment on each shelf like mm. where did this idea of aesthetically f pleasing fruits and veg come from because you know if you think about the movement of buying things farm fresh from you know farmers market and organic goods you know there's naturally imperfections when you buy it straight from the farmers themselves right so i mean yeah no that's a valid point i i, I don't think it's necessarily just a north american problem i've sort of had I guess a bit of a privilege to have grown up in multiple places in the world. Um, I've lived in Australia for nine years before I moved to Canada and I can sort of attest to the fact that things were largely the same there, sadly, 
Um, but I think this notion of fruit and vegetables needing to look a certain way, it definitely seems to be a, a Western uh, society issue. Um, I know you, you cite the example of Japan and, and, and that may very well be true, but um, I also have, I mean, I have an Indian background and I've obviously grown up there as well, I have family there. So going there and, you know, experiencing the food system there is, is very, very different than what it is here. I think because of us in North America being spoiled with a lot of choices, uh, with a lot of options, uh, I think we've now gotten to a point where we expect or we demand rather uh, certain um, standards in, in the way things look, even when they have absolutely nothing to do with, with product quality. Um, and I think this is something that's sort of happened over a, a long period of time. So for it to change quickly is, is likely uh, an unreasonable ask. So we would need to work on taking uh, smaller steps to, to sort of educate people about this specific problem and, and the fact that they can uh, pick up something which isn't beautiful off, off the shelf and still be assured that they're getting the full nutritional benefit of that specific product and, and taste is not compromised. So, yeah, it is it is very deep rooted. And I think to, to try and target that isn't something that happens quickly. I think it, it happens through policy. I think it happens through uh, change makers, whether that's through the domain of entrepreneurship or that's through the domain of sort of food justice organizations. I think it, we all need to collectively band together to uh, overcome this mental barrier that I think people now have, have clung on to for, for a very, very long time. I think that's fantastic. A lot of food for thought there, no pun intended. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jimmy, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So you can check oddbunch.ca, punch in your postal code, see if you can get a box delivered to you. I took a look at the website right now, taking a look the food box this week has things like brussels sprouts and celery so it's a lot of uh i mean stuff you could definitely cook with in your day-to-day maroki yeah absolutely and like you can do veggies only and fruit only or mixed sponges it looks like they're available through most of southwest ontario most postal codes in the gta and even expanding to the greater montreal area so crossing provinces Coming up after the break, you and I are once again stepping out of our comfort zone as we take a look at the world of cider with our very own Danny Longo. After the break on 640 Toronto, we're Tasting Together. This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're going to take a few steps away from wine again this week to talk about other bevies because... Believe it or not, sometimes Andre, Danny, and I drink something other than wine. I just like it when you say bevies. <laughs> I, it's such well, a like, it just feels like such a radio way of saying beverages, but like, it also has like a coolness to it. <laughs> We're here to make beverages cool. <laughs> Danny, I know you've been drinking some, I think, what was it? You've been partaking in ciders lately, right? I have. Yeah, yeah. I visited, I was in Niagara on the lake. It was a... Surprise trip, and we stopped in at uh, Shiny Apple Cider, I think it's called now. Oh, yeah, yeah. It used to be Small Talk uh, Cider and Winery Company. So they've changed their name, and we tried a, we tried a flight of different ciders there. And they make they make so many different ciders. Uh, we ended up taking home, I think it was a Sangria Cider, which was great. Um, we previously bought a pear cider, from, a pumpkin spice pear cider. But it's seasonal, and they don't have it currently at the moment. But yeah, I I love ciders. I love visiting cideries as much as almost as much as wineries. The I feel like the cider industry has just blown up over the last decade or so because when I first started drinking ciders, the only ciders I could 
ever access was essentially Strongbow. Strongbow. Or possibly or Magners. Yeah, or and then yeah, and then later on like Growers and Summersby, but those were quite sweet for me, right? So if I wanted to think of something on the drier spectrum, it would always be British ciders. And then when I lived in the UK for a year, and that's when I that's actually when I turned 19 way back when, um, there was a, a pear cider that was Swedish. And I remember being like, this is delicious and discovering that I couldn't get in Ontario and I was distressed. So when I see Perry ciders widely available now, it's like, oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Finally, for bringing this to me. You know, my first experience are with um, is with Strongbow as well. When I turned legal age out in Saskatchewan, it used to be something I liked to end the night with something a little bit sweet to cap things off. Usually regretted it the next morning. <laughs> Always drink in moderation, people. But like, it's kind of funny, like taking a look at the explosion of craft ciders these days. Um, you know, I actually have a hard time revisiting those. Like, I, I remember, I think a few years ago, I, I picked up a strongbow just to be like, "Ah, oh, hello, old friend. I haven't visited you in a while." Um, and you know, now I, I frequent farmers markets, and you see all these like craft cider producers just literally popping up like weeds. And it should be no surprise when we were doing research uh, on this segment. Uh, that according to the LCBO, the craft cider segment has grown 23.7% year over year, which means that like that category is the largest growing Ontario produced uh, category at the liquor board. Yeah, it's a big deal. I, I was actually quite surprised uh, when you mentioned that, uh, you know, I know personally, I, I enjoy cider, especially in the summertime. Um, and yeah, like visiting cideries, you know, they're busy, but you would never know it. Uh, I have noticed many more products at the LCBO, that's for sure. Andre? Yes. Is it 23% or is it 23 million? Because when I'm reading this number, it says 23.4 million. Yes, listeners, because we actually sit and read through the LCBO's annual report. I have those numbers for you. In 2021, they did $23.4 million in craft cider sales, which is up from $18.9 million in 2020. It's interesting because I remember several years ago, I had a couple of friends who were experimenting with making craft cider and they talked regularly about how difficult it was to to sell cider because in some ways they couldn't, like Elsie <laughs> couldn't quite figure out whether to list cider as wine or beer. So I guess the, they must have discovered a niche somewhere and it might be just because of increased availability on the market. Well, and I know that there's some legislative difficulties as well, like talking to some other cider producers that there's a bit of a challenge selling them directly to restaurants because, you know, when you see VQA on a bottle of wine, which means that it's 100% Ontario made, there is also a tax benefit to having that VQA. It also makes it easier to sell to restaurants and cider doesn't have that same benefit. And, I, you know, I really don't understand why. I, I mean, like, I know we touched on it a little bit earlier in the show, just talking about I'm going to put it in air quotes, the evils of alcohol, like making sure that alcohol is taxed so that it it counteracts any sort of damage it might be doing to society. But when you're talking about craft cider, you're not talking about, you know, craft spirits. It's a lower alcohol product. It's an agricultural product. It's usually made by apple growers. You know, I, I think it lines up more with beer than it does with anything else. I agree with that. And uh, one of the things I find that's really cool about a lot of cideries is, you know, the sustainability and, you know, they're using a lot of the time, you know, they're friends with yeah people who have orchards or they have orchards themselves and you know they're using stuff that falls on the ground uh, you know stuff that isn't being sold to grocery stores essentially so you know they're kind of saving these products from being wasted 
I love that you brought that up, Danny, because one of our earlier segments, we actually were talking with Odd Bunch, which is focused on ugly, quote unquote, ugly fruits and vegetables and preventing them from being diverted to landfills. So it's an interesting point. And the thing is with with fruit like apples and pears, it's I think it's in some ways more quintessentially an Ontario agricultural product than per se grapes are in some ways, right? Like we have a lot of orchards. We have the climb to grow apples of all varieties and pears of all varieties in Ontario. I love that point. That's actually a really great point. It's just sort of like, I think the fascinating thing, like we're seeing the cider market explode, but it's just like the whole idea that cider is still a little bit the undiscovered country in North America. And like, Danny, I know you haven't met him yet, but Maroki, a good friend of ours, uh, Guillaume, who is, uh, you know, very close friend of mine from Normandy. It's just like when, when our friendship blossomed, he's just like, basically ramming cider down my throat every chance he can get because Normandy is one of the few regions in France that doesn't grow wine. And the fun thing is taking a look at, you talked about English cider, which is actually something I'm not terribly familiar with. And then you cross the uh, the channel there and in France, you're dealing with a whole different kind of cider that you're seeing trickle into maybe some hipster wine bars in the city. Um, and it, it's just like, it is insane to me the number of ciders that still haven't made it to the market here in North America. I think there's such a huge selection here. Like you go to you go to any cidery and they'll have like, you know, six to 10 to 15 different flavors essentially for you to try, you know, everything from cherry to pumpkin to pear to, you know, apple, strawberry, peach, like, you know, you name it. And there's like you have what you want. And, you know, it varies on the scale from really sweet to really dry, you know, so, you know, pick your poison. I guess that's the next question I've got to ask, like Maroki and Danny, let, let, let's go around the room. Do you prefer your cider sweet or do you prefer your cider dry and why? I definitely prefer them dry. Now, that being said, I, I think we've had this conversation point before, but even a dry cider is still going to be sweeter in some ways. There's still quite a bit of sugar in apples. So I think inevitably I like the fruit sugars. And I think maybe this is just contrary to a lot of the early ciders that hit the market locally where they had an injection of sugar Mm -hmm. um, on the finished product, which I'm not a fan of. So I think if there's some natural sweetness in the product, I do like it. I think it brings out the fruit flavors more, but I do prefer them drier. Danny? I prefer, I would say sweeter, but not but not too sweet. Um, like like Marogi was saying, like the first ciders that, you know, the growers or that kind of thing, that is way too sweet. But I've had really dry ciders and I wasn't a huge fan. I prefer it a little higher on the sweetness scale, but uh, like a few of the cideries I visited, you know, they had you know three ciders, for example, the Carlisle Cider Company, and all three of them were dry. And their sweetest one, I really liked, you know, so, you know, there's a, I guess there's choices to be made. <laughs> you know, I, I definitely prefer uh, a little more on the sweet side, but I can definitely enjoy a dry cider as well. I don't like the ciders when they're, bone dry i mean it's a thing yes. where, where Moroki said it's just, it's just like i find when you get the ciders that are fermented completely like bone bone dry like you would make a, a wine it's just you get that taste of acidity and nothing else it kind of clobbers all the fruit flavors but we can leave a little bit of, of sugar a little bit of sweetness to it it really just helps to bring that fruit to life um i know banjo cider is a cidery that I've seen at quite a few farmers markets and they do everything from like the bone dry to and and even their sweetest cider isn't that super sweet like injected with with sugar that you were talking about Maroki but like 
you know, it just it just gives you enough sweetness to let the fruit pop. And my reaction when I talk to most cideries these days is just asking them, uh, what's your sweetest cider? Because most of the craft ciders are not making them super sweet. Mm -hmm. I also what I really love about the cider industry in Ontario is that it also branches out our drinks tourism to regions that are still emerging. So I think about Prince Edward County, I think about up in the Georgian Bay area where there's some emerging wine regions, there's a lot of cideries out there because again, apples are, I think, a more commonly available agricultural product and I'm seeing a lot of craft cideries up there. So when people are looking for places to visit in terms of food and drinks tourism, there's cideries like Grain Gold that are opening up up there and they're doing, I, I remember seeing, you know, when, when Danny was saying there's different flavors, like I'm even seeing things like spruce tips infusion so you're getting a sense of terroir in a very different way interesting if you gnaw an apple a day you keep the doctor away so if you drink a cider a day it should be the same thing right i don't know if it works like that but there's only one way to find out <laughs> drink in moderation folks which i guess is the way we wrap up tonight's tasting together <laughs> so remember to set your dial at five o'clock next week to 640 toronto when we taste together again